Dogs in the Raw fans and listeners, I have a special episode for you today. This is actually a podcast interview that I did for another podcast called The Regeneration Podcast, which is a rather new podcast. I believe this is only going to be the fifth or sixth episode of their podcast. Uh, The Regeneration Podcast is hosted by my friends Jay Kim and Isaac Serrano, who are both pastors out in California, in the um, Central California coast, um, Santa Cruz area, Southern Bay area. And these two guys, Jay and Isaac, are just two amazing people. They're thoughtful, they're engaging, they're relevant, they're very pastoral. Their podcast is about, it's about candid conversations about theology, church, mission, and lots of stuff that people are thinking about. I love the vibe of this podcast. They've had other guests on, such as Dan Kimball, Tim Mackey of The Bible Project, uh, my friend Josh Butler, Gary Brashears of Western Seminary, and I believe, I think I'm, well, I think I'm the fifth person to be on the podcast. So uh, again, it's a new podcast, but it's a really fantastic one. I would encourage you to go listen to it. But I asked uh, Jay and Isaac, I'm like, man, that was such a fun conversation. Could I get the MP3 of that interview? And even though they were interviewing me, could I release it on Theology in the Raw? I mean, I often have guests on my show, but rarely do I interview myself on Theology in the Raw because that would be really weird. And you would probably uh, be very concerned about my mental state if I did that. So I, go, I went ahead and let Jay and Isaac interview me and would love to give you our conversation on Theology in the Raw. We talked a lot about the doctrine of hell. I talked about my journey, uh, talked about some things I'm currently thinking through, and they asked some really good questions. It was a fantastic dialogue, a fun one, and hopefully a very relevant one. So please enjoy this guest podcast on Theology in the Raw, hosted by the Regeneration Podcast. What's up, everybody? Isaac here with my friend Jay. Today we have Dr. Preston Sprinkle on the podcast today. We're going to be talking about everyone's favorite uh, discussion item around the dinner table, hell. Uh, So fun. Yeah. Eternal conscious torment. Actually, uh, Preston is going to be breaking down various views for us today on different angles of how to look at hell through the lens of scripture. And hell is not typically thought of as a hopeful topic, but um, you'll be surprised in this conversation how much hope there actually is when you really get into it. Uh, One thing, just to let you know, we did have a few technical difficulties, minor technical difficulties, so you'll hear a few blips here and there during the conversation. We really apologize for that. We're working on that. We'll get it fixed and figured out. Um, But hang in there. It's it's a phenomenal conversation at the end, especially. um, It really gets to the heart of the matter and how we might talk about this really difficult topic with people who are asking really important questions. So thank you guys for listening. And uh, let's jump into this episode with Preston Sprinkle. Preston, so glad to have you on the podcast today. Hey, it's great to be on you guys. Super excited. So a while back, you edited a book that got various scholars together um, to sort of outline different views of of hell. And it's it's interesting because for for a a big portion of church history, everyone kind of landed in sort of what people have called the traditional view, eternal conscious torment. But what this book brought forth was brilliant minds arguing, not necessarily from emotional reasons— but trying to ground their positions in the text exegetically. And they, you, you kind yeah. of 
guided and structured the book so that the various scholars would have different space to argue for their different views. Can you outline those different kind of views and understandings of hell and maybe along the way or after we can talk about maybe your opinions about some of the pros and cons of each views? But yeah, why don't you just lay the landscape for the listeners? It it is, I guess, to start, even though there has been one major view of hell that's been considered the traditional view of hell, which is called eternal conscious torment. And we'll, we'll get to that in a second. If you, if you, if you look at church history, there's a, there, there has been actually a, a more diversity than people realize, especially when we think church history, we often mean Western church history, but there's this whole Eastern tradition that has had um, a mo- more diversity in, in how it thinks about, hell or even the afterlife for those who don't believe in Jesus. And, and, um, but we, yeah, we can get into the specifics there, but yeah, in general, there's, in general, there's three major, let me say general views on hell. The first one that I said, eternal conscious torment, which is what, when 90% of Christians or even the world, when they think of the Christian doctrine of hell, they automatically jump to eternal conscious torment. And, And for most people, they just think that's what hell means. Like hell means to be tormented forever and ever and ever, but that is uh, that is not what hell means. That that is a a view of hell, um, and it has been a dominant view of hell in the Western Church for the last fifteen hundred years or so. Um, another view is sometimes referred to as annihilation. It's kind of the popular term. Other people call it uh, terminal punishment or uh, a con- conditional immortality or conditionalism. And that view just basically says that uh, when people go to hell, uh, they they die. They cease to exist, that there is no ongoing torment. M- maybe there's a, a little bit. I mean, again, if somebody dies in an electric chair or on a cross, I mean, there, there, is, there is suffering there, but it's not a never-ending suffering, And which is why terminal punishment, um, I like that term the best, that there is an end point to the punishment. Uh, the punishment is death. In, in the sense of the, their life ceases. And then the third view uh, would be, it's often referred to as universalism or ultimate reconciliation. And that is the view that uh, at some point in eternity, everybody will end up being redeemed, being reconciled to God. Now, here's the most important thing with these three views is that none of them deny hell. This is this is this is the the biggest misunderstanding, and, and um, you know if you find if people find out you're a universalist or a, a, an annihilationist, if you don't believe in the traditional view, they they immediately say, well, you're denying hell, and hell is in the Bible. I see it there; it's <laughs> all over the place. Um, so why are you you know why don't you believe scripture? And it's like, well, well, wait a minute. I mean, every one of these views believes in hell. They just have a different perspective on, for instance, the duration of punishment in hell or they have a you know like as in universalism they believe in hell people go to hell but they believe you can be redeemed out of hell so they're not denying the existence of hell they're just saying that there's other there's more chances to turn to god um uh when when you're in hell there is a fourth view in the book that i edited called purgatory which uh is a, is a catholic doctrine it's that's it, not technically a view of hell though we included it because it often comes up in the discussion but purgatory is a uh a time of, of uh, refinement for believers to make them fit for heaven, if you will. And, and again, this isn't a doctrine that um, most Protestants endorse, although the, the guy who defended it in our book was an actual Protestant. And there's, there's questions about C.S. Lewis, whether C.S. Lewis believed in a kind of purgatory, which it seems, it seems like he did. It seems like he, he held on to a form of, of purgatory. So yeah, those are the, those would be the four dominant views. There are other nuances to that, but that's a, uh, 
a good place to start. Hey, I'm curious, you know, um, you mentioned universalism, and I think for a lot of people listening, uh, there might be some sort of surface level familiarity with it. My assumption is that maybe there is a question because I think on the surface level reading of it, people assume, wait, I thought universalists say, say there is no hell. Um, explain that a little right. bit. When you say like all of those views don't deny hell, specific to universalism, right. how does a universalist actually um, talk about hell? That's a good question. And let me distinguish between two different types of universalism. And I think this distinction is incredibly important. There is uh, Christian universalism, and then there's, uh, I don't know, you call it non-Christian or, you know, um, yeah, let's just call it a non-Christian universalism. Christian universalism says that that, that everybody ends up getting saved, not because they just sort of followed their own path or followed whatever religion they wanted to. They, they end up getting saved, being reconciled to God because the finished work of Jesus was so powerful that it overcame the unbelief and rejection from, for all humanity. So it's actually, this is kind of more the if you've heard of, you know, Karl Barth, the Bardian view. I mean, Karl Barth was so centered on the power of the cross and Jesus that, it, you know, and, and it's, he's not crystal clear on this, but it seems that he was, you know, um, he, he believed the blood of Jesus was so powerful that it's going to overcome the unbelief of the whole world. Um, so that, that, that is different. I mean, it still elevates and you may completely disagree and think it's heretical or whatever, but it, 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 you have to at least admit that it does elevate and prioritize the, the, the power of, of Jesus's finished work. It's not denying Jesus. It's, it's not saying he's irrelevant. In fact, quite the opposite. It's saying he's hyper relevant. Um, now th- people confuse that sometimes the secular universalism just says, oh, you just, all religions lead to the same place and Christ is one way and this Buddha is another way or whatever. And, and that is very different from Christian universalism. But again, yeah. So even Christian universalists, the, the thoughtful ones, at least, I won't name any names that I think are, are not very thoughtful in their expression of universalism, unless you want me to name some names. <laughs> we'll include them um, in the show notes. <laughs> okay. Um, they, um, they, they, they very much believe that there is a hell and, um, some of the more evangelical expressions of Christian universalism. I'm thinking of, uh, the, the guy who wrote the chapter for our four views book, Robin Perry is a committed evangelical. Um, and he argues, I mean, in fact, his essay in the book probably has more Bible verses than all the other essays combined. I mean, he's arguing rigorously from the text of scripture because he believes in scripture so much. Well, scripture mentions hell. I mean, Jesus mentions it 11 or 12 times with the the Greek word Gehenna. I mean, it's just hell is there. It's mentioned in the Bible. He would just say again, that when people go to hell, um, they don't pass out of existence. They're there, they're suffering, but then they have an opportunity to repent, turn to God while in hell and be rescued out, out of hell. Um, so it's kind of it's kind of interesting that the annihilation perspective mutually excludes universalism, because if you cease to exist, you can't repent in hell. Um, but the eternal conscious torment view um, actually, in, in a sense, uh, creates space for universalism. Some people think that like annihilation is like the first step towards universalism. If you if you go the annihilation route, then that's just one more step towards universalism. And, and my view is it's actually the opposite. If you go annihilation, you have excluded universalism. Um, whereas if you believe that, if you believe in the traditional view that you're in hell forever and ever and ever and 10 billion years, you know, while you're suffering that either you're not going to repent 
Or if you do repent, God's not going to accept your repentance while in, in hell. So the traditionalist needs to make that argument. But again, they, they both believe that, that they're going to the same place, the universalist and the traditionalist. One just believes that you can be rescued out of it. It's uh, interesting. As you mentioned, every single one of these views has so many different like layers and nuances where there's sub views and can be compartmentalized different, even probably important to note with the view of purgatory. Um, there is a, a very, very bad version of purgatory that, that somehow yes. is speaking of justification taking place. So the finished work of Christ isn't being uh, applied in a, what we would say is a theologically sound manner. But when, when an evangelical tries to argue it, they are saying that this kind of purgative process is for sanctification reasons that it's like yes, prepping you for yes. heaven, but it's not being done in a salvific sense in, in, in a way for salvation. I don't hold to that view, but I, it's again, all of these things you want to be fair because there's people who are arguing for stuff and they just get lumped in a category where immediately someone goes, yes. Oh, that person, you know, doesn't believe in Jesus. I think you have a line like that where people find out John Stott in, in the book, in the, in the preface, you have something where like people find out John Stott, who's like evangelical capitan, like people love him when they find out that he, uh, dabbled with the annihilationist view, they just like, oh my gosh, John, John Stott isn't a Christian type of thing. Because they lump it together with a bunch of other uh, preconceived kind of thoughts about these views. Yeah, that's so true. So even even like the way C.S. Lewis talks about purgatory, he's not like denying the finished work of Jesus. It's not like a supplement to the atoning work. It's simply part of sanctification, which everybody believes that there is atonement, and then, but there's also a process of sanctification. So that's that's incredibly important. That, that yeah, with all these views, there's different variations, and and if you don't understand that, you can make these wild accusations toward people to hold the views. For instance, when I when I first found out that John Stott was you know believed in annihilation, this is 20 years ago in seminary when I first thought about it, and my reaction was like I was like oh my gosh, wait a minute. I thought John Stott was a Christian, and, and we know that Christians can't hold to annihilation, so does this mean, and I, I immediately went to like the once saved, always saved, like, gosh, does this mean he lost his salvation, and I don't believe you can lose your salvation, so I guess this means you weren't, he wasn't a Christian all along, <laughs> and, and looking back, it's so, so ridiculous, because, I mean, if you look at John Stott's argument, and a lot of people who are annihilationists, it's not like they're, they don't, they don't deny scripture to get there, they typically go back to scripture and say, I think we've misunderstood some of these passages. So it's actually out of allegiance to Scripture, not in spite of Scripture that they hold to uh, the view. But I'm sure we'll probably get there later in this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I, I do, I do want to get there, and I want to, um, I want to take sort of a personal path to get there. Several years ago, actually, the the when I first sort of came across your work for the very first time, it was several years ago. Um, and then we'll we'll just name names. Let's just name names. Rob Bell had just written a book called Love Wins. And it was causing all sorts of controversy and uproar. Yeah. And at the time, you were working really closely with uh, another really um, well-known name in the evangelical world, uh, Francis Chan, um, who's been a friend of Regeneration for a couple of years now and has done stuff with us. So you and Francis are close. And um, shortly after Rob Bell's book came out, uh, you and Francis co-wrote a book called Erasing Hell, um, which to me 
came across as a sort of response, um, and I don't know if it was, you can speak more to that, but it was certainly about how a lot of the uproar behind Rob's book was about um, what was perceived as universalism on his end. And then you and Francis wrote a book that was responding to that in a very different way. And then your journey after Erasing Hell went in a really interesting direction as well. So Maybe I know it's more personal, but I think it'll be helpful for us in terms of framing these different sure. views on hell. Talk us through that journey and um, how you've gotten to to maybe where you're at now. Yeah. So when when Rob Bell wrote his book, both Francis and I um, read it and uh, we talked about it, and both of us had kind of the same perspective. Uh, first of all, we were like, "Man, we 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 hope we'll be right." <laughs> um, and he's such a compelling thinker and writer and and um we we really appreciated so much of what he did in the book but then both of us are scratching our heads thinking well man this is not what we thought the bible talked about taught about hell but neither of us had really studied it for ourselves so that's when we said, well let's let's step back and and actually you know look at what the bible does say about hell and be open to maybe rob bell is right maybe he's wrong maybe there's something to his view and, and so we kind of took a we didn't take a real aggressive kind of like, you know, boom, we're going to prove him wrong and, and then go and then go to the text and show why he's wrong. We actually said, let's explore. And we really did do that um, as best as we can. And uh, early on, I became very convinced that his view was, was incorrect. I didn't think that the universalist view that people um, saved out of hell. I, didn't, I just didn't see it in the text. Now, here's the thing. The main what we ended up arguing in the book, the main point was not about the duration of hell, how long the punishment lasts, whether it's forever or instantaneous or whatever. The, the, our main point was that the punishment in hell is irreversible. So whether it's ongoing or terminal, whether ECT or annihilation, that, that really wasn't our main point. We both says, said that, man, there's a lot more evidence for annihilation than we had thought, but we felt that the, the stronger arguments favored um, the, the traditional view. So we leaned he pretty heavily towards the traditional view, but acknowledged the strength of, of annihilation. That, that's, that's where we were at in the book. Since then, I, I was really fascinated with that annihilation position and the more i came back and uh studied it after the book was released you know I, I would kind of periodically revisit the arguments and conversations and talking to people and studying this studying that and and uh the more i did that um even to this day the, the more i've become convinced that the annihilation view is actually uh stronger biblically um than the traditional view now that's made that's made a lot of people nervous Preston sprinkles not a christian <laughs> I started to doubt my own salvation. Like I'm going to end up where John Stott is, is in hell, you know, <laughs> at least it won't last very long. No. Um, so, and, and here's, here's, okay. So I'm going to start getting preachy. It, let, let me, let me say this caveat and this caveat needs to be heard for everything else to make sense. Um, I don't want to try to convince somebody that the traditional view is wrong. I'm not saying that they're not reading the Bible correctly. I mean, I think that there's good reasons to believe the traditional view. When, when I read the text and, and when I wrestle with the arguments, I think that the biblical evidence is far superior toward the, um, the annihilation view. But I, I don't want to belittle or demean or think that people who hold the traditional view or just not, don't like the Bible or whatever. But here's, for me, as I started to explore this, and, I, and I've always been one to explore stuff publicly, and I don't really 
care what people think. I'll just, hey, I, this seems like this verse is saying this, and I'll you know blog about it or something, and people get all upset sometimes, and uh, that's okay. I don't, I don't, I don't mind that at all. I'm gonna go where the text leads. I, I know I'm committed to that, and and uh, but you know, it was the accusations that I was getting, like sprinkled now denies hell, or he's not reading the Bible, or they'd quote verses at me as if I haven't. You know, um, you know, my grandma used to say, you know, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, you know, <laughs> and that, that's been kind of my posture. Like if, if, God, if the traditional views in a text, God can do what he wants. That's always been my posture. And even to this day, I've never argued for the annihilation view on emotion that I just can't stomach the biblical view, you know, but the, these are the kind of accusations that were coming. But the more I started studying the arguments, the more I was like, man, I, I can't believe how much biblical the evidence there is for the annihilation view. And I can't believe that I never saw it before. I mean, think about like John three sixteen. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, for God's love the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not be tormented forever and ever, but have everlasting life. It's how we've read the verse or understood the verse, but it says shall not perish. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Whoa, whoa. I've said that verse, you know, at least, hundreds of times, you know, <laughs> and I've never even stopped to think about perish, perish. That, that sounds like, that doesn't sound ongoing. That sounds like their life ends, like something comes to an, an end. Um, and then I started to go back to many other passages, you know, Matthew 10, 28 and second Peter two. And we, we can look at these if you want, but there's many passages that use language of death and destruction and, and language that in of itself would suggest some sort of termination, not an ongoing nature of the punishment. And then it really came down to just kind of a small handful of verses, uh, Matthew 25 um, and uh, Revelation 14 could be taken to support the traditional view. But even those, the more I studied them, I wasn't really convinced. So um, and that, that's been my journey. And, and I'm, I'm very open and eager to go where the text leads. And um but every time I revisit what the text says about hell, I, become, I do become more and more convinced of, of the annihilation view. Yeah, I think there's a, for the average person just growing up in the church, again, there's a, there's a narrative going on. And so they fit those verses straight into that, that narrative that they, they grew up with. And it's just, oh, heaven, hell, those are both kind of eternal forever places. But when you start digging into the text and you're looking at, okay, Jesus is using the word Gehenna. What is the function of Gehenna? Uh, in the first century, when you you look at these verses where in new light, like John three sixteen, and then verses that talk about the second death, or the verse that says there's someone who you know could take out more than your body, he can destroy all of you, mm -hmm. body and soul, and then all of a sudden, then a real exegetical argument has to be made, and I think that's where where I'm at personally is the two kind of real viable options for me exegetically are the the traditional eternal conscious torment view and then an annihilation view with um and tell me what you think about this there still yeah. has to be some some punishment there's there's people in our culture especially in our culture that go like how could god punish someone in hell and I, and I'm going like man how could god not I mean, when you look at some yeah. of the most evil, vile, when you look at people who traffic children for sex, I'm going, if that yeah. person dies without ever having to face some type of judgment, the question for me isn't how could a, how could a good God you know, exist and send people to hell? I'm going, how could a good and just God not do something with human evil? Yeah. And so for me, yeah. both exegetically, philosophically, and the emotional bent tells me my, my two options are 
eternal conscious torment and a view of annihilation where there's still some type of justice served to those who des- deserve it. Right, right. And that, that's where, yeah, absolutely. And that's where the annihilation would say that death is the punishment. But, you know, Paul says the wages of sin is, is death. And, and, and I know a, a, a traditionalist is, is going to say, well, th- what that means is, you know, separation from God. And, and we know that in hell you're separated from God and you're tormented forever and ever. And I'm, but I think that is a bit circular. It's like, well, maybe, but um, it could perhaps be expanded to mean ongoing torment forever and ever. Life is continued, but we have to prove that, not just assume it. But yeah, so uh, it, it, and here's another thing to misunderstood about annihilation. They think that when you die, then that's it. You just pass out of existence. That is not what annihilation is say. They say that, you know, Daniel 12 and, and, and um, uh, John 5 and other passages talk about a, a resurrection of the godly and the ungodly. When Jesus returns, all the dead are raised. They all face judgment. And that judgment is either according to the annihilationist view, you know, eternal life with God or punishment via death. Like the, the death is the final punishment or what we would call you know we would consider capital punishment i mean what's the worst the worst kind of punishment in the united states is not torture it's it's death it's the electric chair i mean that's like and and when people say you're 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 just downplaying the justice of god or the wrath of god i'm like we capital punishment is is a big deal like that's kind of you know that's like debated today right that we should even have that and and um i don't think you're you're taking the 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 softer route or diminishing the wrath of God. That's to say capital punishment is death. And, and you have scriptural themes that would support that when Adam and Eve sinned, you know, death, not torment was introduced as, as a punishment for their, for their sin. What What's interesting and, and probably good for our listeners to know is uh, the ancient mind thought about death a little differently than we do. So when you ask me what's worse, death or torture, I immediately say torture. Torture is far sure. worse than death. Uh, the second they start pulling out my fingernails, kill me. Done deal. Um, but if you look at the way people talked about it, um, especially into the context of, of the New Testament, actually ceasing to exist was far worse in people's mind mm. than being tortured. And there's numerous quotes and people who talk like that. And so the framework then is different th- than ours, which is very, very interesting. Here's a, a, a question for you, Preston. Um, sure. And, and again, I'm arguing now from a, a philosophical point, and it, it, I'm betraying my own rules by not grounding this in the text, but on a, on a kind of philosophical and, and emotional level, if, if there's two people and one person, you know, by normal society standard, lived a morally upright life, they paid their bills, you know, didn't, didn't do the best not to hurt people, they were a relatively good person in a, in a kind of 21st century modern sense, versus, say, someone like Pol Pot. For God to annihilate both of them, and there's an equal penalty, does that bother you with the justice of God? Because on my gut level, I'm going like, no, there's a different level of punishment that has to be reserved for this. Does that bother you? And if it does, or if it doesn't, how do you resolve that and work through it with, with, your, with your view, if that makes sense? There, there's variations, and some forms of annihilation would allow for different degrees of punishment. Again, it's not that everybody is killed in the same way or annihilated, you know, uh, in the same way. There could be there could be punishment that prefaces the the actual death. It just says that it's not going to be forever and ever. Maybe it's an hour, maybe it's a day, maybe it's a week, maybe it's a year, whatever. Like I don't think scripture gets that specific, but there there does seem to be 
you know, Jesus in, in Matthew and other passages, Matthew, what, 10, um, where he does seem to talk about higher and, and h- higher degrees of, of punishment for, for different people. And, and even in the Old Testament justice system, there's, um, but yeah, again, the, the annihilation view, the, some forms of it would very much allow for that sort of thing. As far as um, on, a, on a philosophical level, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess I, I am so exegetically driven. <laughs> yeah, that sounds, that sounds a little a little arrogant. I mean, but I, I truly am. Like I, to me, I, I dismiss your philosophy. I only ground my thoughts in the biblical text. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> yeah, I just I, the Bible says that that's where I'm going to go. But I, yeah, I, I I'm not really too troubled. I don't I don't know. I I, I don't need really bad people to get a worse punishment i'm just seeking emotionally um or maybe more philosophical maybe emotionally i would but philosophically um because on on the flip side i don't think that really good christians should get you know uh, a higher chair in heaven i I know some you know some people believe that but i think when we're talking about grace i think you know the the person who work the field in the last hour gets the same reward as a person who's been working all day. You know, Jesus has a parable about that and gets on people for being kind of upset at that. So, um, yeah, but I, I do think again, that the annihilation view would allow for different degrees of punishment if that's indeed what the text demands. Yeah. You know, when I hear some of that, it gets back to the level of emphasis. And I think, you know, for self-preservation sake, most people are, are most interested in what hell is. That's like, that's the brunt of the conversation. And what we risk losing in that is that the point of the biblical story and the story of God unfolding in the scriptures and in our world today, the emphasis is not hell, 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 but rather heaven and earth making wrong things yeah. right. Um, yeah. And that hell... And the consequences of choosing something other than God is really a part of the larger unfolding story, which is God is making everything right. God is healing and restoring and renewing all things. And there are, there's fallout because of that, because of the stuff that isn't of God's good new world has to be done away with. And I think that's where Isaac, it, it gets down to the justice of God. God must, as a just God, in recreating the world, he must eradicate the world of all the brokenness and sin. And sadly, that includes people who choose something other than God and his good new world. Um, and I think that's where it gets really tricky. So Preston, I, I'd be curious to know, maybe put on like your pastoral hat. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of young people who have been a part of Regeneration. They're maybe on our website. They listen to our podcast. They're starting to really ask you know, the statistics even tell us young people are starting to really ask these tough questions that even our generation didn't really ask as much. You know, these really smart, bright, thoughtful questions about, man, hell and a good God, that doesn't make sense. Talk pastorally, you know, if if the three of us were, were also um, sitting with, you know, the 22-year-old college kid who maybe grew up in the church um, but it's all starting to break down now and he's having a hard time reconciling. Yeah, I was told God's really good and loving and wants everybody to know him, but then he sends people to hell and maybe it is annihilation and he destroys them forever and they're gone. Or maybe it is he's just beating them over the head with a baseball bat forever. I mean, like that doesn't make sense to me. Talk pastorally um, to that person who has that tension. The first thing I'd say is 
um, let me tell you a story. I, 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 a friend of mine, former colleague, he's in his 60s, been a missionary, been a pastor, church planner, really amazing guy. He says the traditional view of hell has been the number one thing that has been a, a hindrance in his faith. <laughs> he just, and he's a, he's a evangelical committed to the Bible and, and he just never thought about another doctrine and he's believed it. But he says that has caused me to doubt God more than any other thing. When I started to give biblical credibility to the annihilation, not that I'm the only one to do it, but he was following my, my blogs and discussions and stuff. He says his faith in God is, was just like, was just opened up in, 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 in ways he's never experienced in, in, in his, you know, 40, 50 years of ministry. And so, and I, I've gotten that response from several people. And I think pastorally that, it, you know, there are a few things in the Christian faith that have been major stumbling blocks for people either, either embracing the God of the Bible or trusting the God of the Bible. And I think that the traditional view of hell ha- has been one of them. Now, let me be, again, really clear. If the Bible says the traditional view is correct, then we cannot manipulate the Bible not to say that because we just can't handle it or we need we can't believe in a God who would do that. Like you, I think the, we need to believe in a God who can do whatever God says he does. Like we need to trust in the creator to, to be the creator in the way that he is the creator as revealed in scripture, not try to say, well, you know, if, if God, God must fit my standard of fairness for me to believe in him. However, there is, and this is what I do want everybody to, to agree on <laughs> that, that there is, there is at least, even if you can't fully go there, there is remarkable biblical, evidence for the annihilation view it needs to be considered as a evangelical biblical option you know kind of like the debate between can you lose your salvation or not or is our tongues for today or not like most sane people would say look i can see both i definitely land on this side and here's why but i'm not going to say the other per- the other view is not not biblical like it's not an option you know and that's that's what it for people to know that like there are other biblical options other than the traditional view. I think that can be pastorally incredibly helpful. And, and this is where even pastors that hold to a traditional view, I think at least open up this possibility. I think you will probably get a lot more traction in, in your, your gospel witness or your discipleship um, for a lot of people, especially younger people. Now, some people are still hung up on the annihilation, any kind of hell, any kind of punishment, um, is problematic. But I, again, I do bring it back to that, that statement in Genesis 18, uh, will not the the judge of all the world do what is right. I do think that that is our primary commitment. And I would see it's, it's just part of the fabric of believing in God in general, part of believing in God, this God of the Bible is trusting his, that, that he will, uh, execute justice in a way that is right and, and and fair and is consistent with his goodness like that I think that does come with believing in God not that you can't wrestle with that or have problems with that but you must first of all believe that the judge of all the world will do what is right and then we can you know look at scripture and see how that justice is is executed but I'm just I'm not comfortable pastorally with people saying until God fits this kind of standard of goodness that I think is that I think is goodness, I can't, I can't believe in him. Um, I, th- I think we do need to, 
to get over that. Maybe that's not very pastoral for me to say that. Get no, over no, it. that's <laughs> very, very pastoral. I think I was actually going to close with the Genesis 18 text. No, um, no pri- way. Okay. Primarily because um, if you have a problem with this, you're wrestling with it. No matter what view is right, you, you need to know you can go to bed at ease tonight, not wrestling with tormenting yes. yourself over this because the God revealed in Jesus Christ who was crucified for, for men and women, that God will judge rightly. No one will be able to say to that God, you didn't do right. He always does right. He's always good. So whatever he's going to do with this when it's all said and done, we know there's a, there's a good king who's on the throne who made a promise to eradicate evil and we can trust his process, whatever that looks like. And that to me, that's just wrapped up in the character the fundamental character of God that's revealed in Scripture it almost comes with believing in that God is trusting that he, his goodness will not always make sense, his justice will not always make sense, but that he is good and, and just, and that's a fundamental part of his, his character. Yeah, I love that. Preston, um, your tone and... You know, it's funny, you just said, like, maybe I said that and it wasn't that pastoral, but you have such a pastoral tone in everything you do in your writing, both your blogs and your books, as well as, you know, both Isaac and I have been in the room when you've done presentations on incredibly difficult topics. And the way you balance significant, rich, responsible theology with a pastoral, very human, loving, kind, generous spirit is um, it's unlike many, most people out there. So you're a gift to the church and to leaders. So we just want to say thank you so much for your work. We hope that today is the first of, there's so many things we want to talk to you about. So we want to (laughs) make sure we have you back on um, as much as we can. But um, for people who, who want to stay connected to you, let people know maybe some of the different ways they can stay connected to you and follow some of your work. Yeah, my website, pressandsprinkle.com, super easy to remember, is uh, kind of a one-stop shop with with all the stuff that I'm doing, my podcasts around there, my blogs, my uh, books I've written. Um, I'm also the president of an organization called the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender, and that website is centerforfaith.com. And that's really where my primary ongoing activity is right now. That's my full-time job, and so that's that'd be another one to look at. Also, I mean, if people are interested in learning more about hell, I'm speaking at the Rethinking Hell Conference in March, March 9th and 10th in Dallas, Texas. If you go to RethinkingHell.com and look up conference, you can register for that. that that's going to be a – what's so cool about that conference is you have um, both the traditional view and the annihilation view represented. And you have other really world-renowned scholars that are going to be there on different sides of this question. So if if this is a topic that your listeners are, are – really really you know grasping for more understanding that would be a fantastic place where they can ask questions and rub shoulders with people who are who are wrestling with it as well that's awesome preston thank you so much for your time and for your work and um so appreciate it and we really do hope to talk to you again really soon my pleasure thanks for having me on